Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Sustainable E-Commerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand sustainably. I'm your host, Giles Smith, and today I'm joined by the dynamic duo of Hayley Clark and Karen Platt. Together, they are serial sustainable brand entrepreneurs, having started up female fashion label 1P Designs and, more recently, the Candle Exchange. We spend a little time chatting about 1P, but the reason I asked them to come on the show is that they are right now, and at the risk of throwing in a non-sustainable metaphor, at the coalface of developing a circular business model based around swap-and-go candles. There is no doubt that recycling has its issues, and so figuring out the reverse logistics to enable a circular business model is potentially a critical strategy for sustainability, as well as being a very smart move for encouraging returning customers. I know you're going to find this as fascinating a discussion as I did. So with that, let's start the show. Hayley and Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Giles. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. We have so much to discuss because you guys as I said, are serial entrepreneurs in the sustainability space. And we want to, t- we want to pack both of those two journeys. But before we do, perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and maybe Karen, we could start with you. Thanks, Giles. Thank you very much. Just a little, I suppose, high level background. Haley and I had the opportunity to work together in marketing and customer experience in Optus probably about eight or 10 years ago now. Um, so we've got quite a lengthy corporate background in in everything from product management, um, product development, marketing, customer experience, operations. We we were probably a little bit disillusioned with working within a, a big engine and wanted to do something a little bit different and, and, and I suppose control our, our destiny. About five years ago, just after I'd had my little um, my little girl, Haley approached me and and asked me if I was interested in working with her. And I'll, I'll let her tell the, the the story because she had the the big idea and the and the vision. Um, but I I, th- I think the the interesting thing for working in a co-founding environment is that we had had um, a working relationship and we knew that we're very complementary. Um, Haley's definitely very visionary. Um, she's got some some great big ideas. She's very financially. Um, you know, grounded with with some experience across some boards as well. And I just love to implement, you know, innovative solutions so that it, it, we go hand in hand. Um, but I'll hand over to Hayley so she can she can talk about, I suppose, the evolution of the idea and, and how we arrived uh, where we are today. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, so as Karen said, we did a long stint, both of us in the corporate world. I started at IBM when I was 19 years old. So I was there for just over 13 years. So I, I think at a young age, I really got exposed to innovation, fast pace, you know, nothing staying the, tra- the, the, the same and, and working for, at that time, the most uh, successful and known brand in the globe, which was just fantastic grounding. I came from a family of entrepreneurs. So I think it was just only a matter of time before I um, yeah, swapped over to the other side and so glad that I did. Um, but yeah, Karen and I, we'd worked together 
for quite a few years and just loved that experience. And I remember one day we were sitting around having a drink and uh, our, our dreams sort of were that one day we'll go off and do something on our own um, and create a purpose-led business um, that we're both very proud of, never knowing at the time that that was going to happen. But a couple, couple of years later, the opportunities presented itself. So I was traditionally in marketing. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with women because marketing is uh, over 80% women. And this issue of what to wear to work just kept coming up over and over and over again. Um, I was challenged with it. The colleagues that I worked with were challenged with it. Um, and then sort of you saw this introduction of a concept of creating a uniform that you could wear to work so that you didn't have to do all this thinking in the morning with all the other thinking that you had to do before you even walked through the office doors. So the dream sort of came about uh, setting up a clothing range that was sustainable based on natural fibres made locally that could form the basis of a uniform that you'd be able to wear to work so that you could get rid of the cheap synthetic that made you really uncomfortable, didn't last long um, and really smelt by the end of the day, um, you know, as you went through your day. And so that's the sort of idea that I took to Karen was that I wanted to be able to create this sustainable clothing brand for women in work so that they could feel more comfortable, dress more sustainably as they head off to the office and do their long days. And that's where 1P was created. Yeah, went off and did a, a fashion degree because I wanted to learn the technical aspects of it. And then, yeah, our journey began. That's an amazing transformation from IBM through to Optus and then into a, into the fashion industry. And, and, and I think that right there just goes to prove that, you know, when you have a passion to do something, it doesn't really matter where you've come from because everyone has a set of skills that they can redeploy somewhere. Just because just because you've never been in the fashion space before doesn't mean that you can't be in the fashion space. You know, I think you guys have, have proved that well. So, so I mean, obviously, I've just I've been looking at your at the One P Design website, and you've obviously chosen all the a whole bunch of interesting fabrics there. You've gone, you know, organic cotton. You've gone silk. You've got you've gone Tencel. If I understand correctly, One P makes all its clothing in Australia. So how did you go about finding factories that would work with specifically those sustainable materials? Well, it's interesting that you say that because it's it, it really took me months to be able to find a manufacturer. Um, as you're starting out as a new designer, the minimum water quantities to be able to get done in Australia and even offshore are just so high. So I was really lucky that I came across um, a lovely lady, Paddy, in Chippendale, and she had just lost a new uh, one of her existing customers over to Portugal for their manufacturing. And so just it was a timing thing where she had an open and and we had some manufacturing that needed to get done. So we negotiated on minimum order, order quantities. She was very excited about working with natural fibres because anyone in the textiles industry that's passionate about it loves working with natural fibres because they are the best to work with. And so, yeah, that, that journey begun. Uh, I mean, fortuitous. Uh, I guess, but it, it worked. It worked out for you. So tell us a little bit more about. I know we're going to jump into this really new, exciting venture that you that you've recently kicked off in a moment. But tell us a little bit more about actual One P. Like, how did you interact with your customers? Like, was it an entirely e-commerce brand? Was it was it a retail store? Was it a, a bricks and clicks? So it started off as an e-commerce brand. Uh, so direct to consumers online. And then we started to do some wholesaling. However, that's when we started to really see some challenges because the textiles and, and clothing industry is, is, is quite a old school, clunky industry to work in. And it has extremely complex supply chains that are very, very hard to change. 
And it requires a lot of capital to be able to re-engineer those supply chains. And so, you know, for us to be direct-to-consumer was great um, and we could meet the margins direct-to-consumer. But as we looked to start to wholesale, the prices of our products um, had to, you know, be significantly increased, which we just didn't feel comfortable with charging onto the consumer, but it out, would outprice us in the marketplace. So I found with textiles and clothing, it, it, it's an industry where you're incented to actually not behave in the right way. So to succeed, you have to offshore. To succeed, you have to use synthetic cheap fibres. To succeed, you have to yeah be in the fast fashion, lots of waste. So to be able to do it sustainably, to be able to recreate you know, supply chains that were going to make it more effective and, and, and more price comparable, you need a lot of capital to be able to go into it. That's sort of a clunky system, isn't it? You know, I, I hear a lot of people bemoaning that exact same thing when it comes down to wholesaling in particular so let's focus for a moment on the on the retail aspect of that because you opened i believe a store as well as your online store how did that go like how was the balance of managing both of those two things well it was really funny because we sort of went completely against the grain uh we were in covid in our first lockdown and i was down at my local uh mall that i go to and there was the shop it was uh, a beautiful shop that had been exited by a major fashion brand and it was vacant so i called up the the, the provider the mall provider and looked at potentially doing a pop-up and so we ended up getting this pop-up um, in this beautiful fitted out store at a really good price right in the middle of COVID and so we opened our first store right in the middle of COVID in retail and to be honest it was fantastic uh, you know we uh, yeah, it actually performed uh, very well um, considering the environment so uh, yeah that's sort of how our bricks and mortar uh, adventure started. So one of the things I love about that, and I'm really keen to ask you about this, because, you know, from an e-commerce perspective, it's very ha- it can be very arm's reach and it can be very difficult to really get to know customers unless you're, at the, you know, unless you're personally fulfilling the orders and talking to customers all day long. You actually have to make a conscious effort, don't you, in e-commerce to, to get to know your customers and understand what they like. But one of the benefits of having a, of having a BRICS uh, you know, a real a real world store is that you get to talk to people. Now, I'm interested to see from your perspective, have you seen in particular in the last couple of years since you've since you've been open a trend in pe- what people are saying away from fast fashion? And have you seen a trend towards circularity in clothing and in, in, in clothing retail? Have you seen that demand come through from customers? Yeah, I definitely see it. So there was a couple of different things that we got exposed to in our bricks and mortar and we still do today. Just on on our brand alone specifically, e-commerce was really hard for us um, because our value resides in the quality of the fabrics. So to be able to have customers come and tangibly feel the quality of the fabrics, that was a game changer for us. And even today, we have people that constantly come in and just feel the fabrics and go, oh my God, these are the most amazing fabrics. And so from, from that perspective, the tangible aspect of being able to touch it was it was very valuable to us. Um, throughout COVID, there was some major changes, and I'm sure Karen can talk to this as well. Um, one of the key things that um, happened over COVID that we still continue to see 
is the Australian made. That ability to be able to say that you are made just down the road in Chippendale is something that people really, really value and appreciate. And to be honest, I hope to see that continue. I do find consumers in some cases do have quite short memories, but at the moment, you know, yeah, that Australian made is something that's very, very important to people. And then sustainability is becoming more and more something that, you know, customers are looking for. So yeah, you have your diehard sustainable, that's all they buy and that's what they want, which is fantastic. But you're seeing more of the mainstream starting to shift and be a little bit more purposeful about what they're buying and why they're buying it. Yeah, I think it, it's been a really interesting two years, right? So I think consumers have seen the impact of supply chains. You know, two Christmases ago, people were struggling to buy Christmas presents. So that it's really hit them and then becomes a far more conscious of the global supply chain. So I think the local value proposition has been elevated and, you know, our, our point of difference in that mall is everything we source is locally made um, and, and natural fibres. We are bringing in other Australian natural uh, fibre brands as well. So I think that's that's one thing. The, the, the other thing is that people started changing the way they they dressed. Obviously, people were working from home, so there was a lot more leisure wear. But I think there's a tendency for people to, to invest in a more, more sustainable, but for them more functional, long-term garment. Because they're not necessarily going to the office every day and wearing down that garment. They're thinking about, what is it that I'm going to wear for the next couple of years? So when you're talking about you know, beautiful merino um, jacket and beautiful merino pants and merino t-shirts and Australian cotton t-shirts. I think that value proposition is resonating more now because of that longer term investment consideration, as well as understanding that I need to source locally. I need to support local businesses that have been struggling, but I also don't want to be impacted by the global supply chain and the gaps within that supply chain. I I think you've hit on two really important points I want to touch on uh, just quickly. The first one is deglobalization. I mean, we've seen it in every industry, actually, not just the uh, retail fashion industry. Everybody that I talk to is saying that now more than ever, and it's always been true to a degree for Australians, uh, because Australia has been a long way behind the rest of the curve in um, e-commerce adoption for you know, a long time. And it's really only just caught up in the last couple of years, thanks to the pandemic. If you can say thanks, anything is thanks to the pandemic. That That is true. So this notion that people are actively looking to buy local is a phenomenon that's sweeping everywhere. And it's not just Australia, it's in the US, it's in the UK, it's everywhere, which is, which is very interesting. But I want to come back to this point about pricing, because you just mentioned, the, and you said it a couple of times there, you said the word invest. People are investing in clothing. And that's an interesting concept to me, because one of the things that we talk about a lot is the power of pricing and and the notion of that in many cases acquiring the materials in a sustainable way is more expensive than mass produced synthetic stuff and you know obviously we hope that it lasts longer that it's better quality and all those things consumers have been educated over many years to buy cheap because of, of the mass mass produced brands so from a point of view of pricing, if you've, if you've seen this, both of these two trends come in with both sustainability and you know, purchasing for the longer term, how have you found the ability to discuss the price with customers? And are they less price sensitive now? Are they willing to pay more for sustainable products? And are they willing to pay more for products that are going to last longer than they were previously? I'd like to answer that by saying yes, but I think that the wave of fast fashion is so high that we're having to uneducate 
if that makes sense. So I think, yes, you know, our, our consumers are informed. They understand their money. They understand investing in things. And, and certainly, you know, we've, we've debated our messaging around, you know, return on investment. If you were to buy a Merino pair of pants for $300 versus six pairs of fast fashion at $50, you know, there's the environmental, but there's also the financial benefit to being able to wear those long-term. I think, the bigger issue at hand is the social aspect of not wearing the same thing twice. I think that we're fighting that as well as the lower price points. So we, we certainly got behind the movement from um, there was a movement around wearing repeats to work and allowing women permission not to wear something different every time they turned up at work. Um, men have solved that a long time ago with pants, you know, ties, suits, and we need to allow ourselves, and it's often women that put pressure on women in the workplace to, to, to do that. So I think there's there's a number of dynamics here at play. I, I think we're still as price conscious as ever because of the cost of living um, is, is, you know, such a hot topic and, and a sensitive one for, for many people. Over COVID, job security was, was a big issue. So I don't think there's splashing of money towards sustainable brands as much as we'd like to theoretically think there is. I think there's a, there's many, many dynamics at play there. Hayley, did you have a view on that? No, I, I, I'd agree. I think there has been a small shift. Like I do think that there is, because of COVID, there is a feeling that people just don't need to buy as much, so are willing to spend more on the items that they do buy. But I, st- I still think that we have a very long way to go. This is such an interesting topic. I, I would love to keep talking about this and exploring it for another half an hour with you guys, because it's such an important topic to all of our businesses, especially now with you know rising interest rates and inflation, all those horrible things. But I'm going to be really selfish because I cannot wait any longer to talk about your new brand, uh, The Candle Exchange, because I'm so excited by what you guys are doing here. Perhaps you could just intro it a little bit first, maybe... Uh, Maybe Haley, do you want to do you want to just introduce the brand a little bit and what you're doing because this is really exciting to me. All right, so Candle Exchange, as far as we know, is the first in the world swap and go candles. So when we say swap and go, it is literally the same as the Soda Stream model. So you buy a candle, take it home, enjoy it. When you finish, you bring it back or you send it back online or you go to your you know local retailer. Um, a stopping candle exchange and you swap it on the spot for another candle now the advantages of that one when you swap over your candles the next candle you receive is 40 percent cheaper and then overall the advantage is everything is reused so all of those candle containers are then gone off washed and we put them back in production again and so yes that's that in a in a nutshell is candle exchange I love that so much. You, you, you guys are literally a, a fantastic representation of one of the, the most genuine examples of circularity that I've seen so far, you know, without it being over-engineered and fake. It's, it's a real thing built into the business model for an everyday product. And I love it. It's genius. But then my business sort of um, management side comes out and then I start to go, but hang on. How does that work? How, like, this is a, I mean, let's be honest, candles are not super high price items, right? We're not talking about three or $400 candles here, although you might have one or two of those on, in the, in the range. We're talking about, you know, probably, I guess, you know, somewhere between 40 and, and 80, 80 bucks as a, as a candle. Like, how do you structure that in such a way that it's actually profitable and sustainable for your business? 
Yeah, great questions, Giles, and um, one that has evolved for us because we certainly didn't sit there saying how we're going to make money out of candles. It was an evolution of observing customer behaviour, putting some candles in our store, Hayley offering to refill them because during COVID she fell in love with pouring candles. I I think the, the interesting component of this business model and one that we are getting a greater understanding of is the amount of cost that sits in packaging. The the opportunity here for us to make this a viable and feasible offer is the fact that as consumers, we invest in not only the product, but what gets wrapped around it. So where the advantage is, is that you buy that container once you can't, it comes in in future um, a reasonable bag and we'll admit we've got it in a box at the moment. Um, there was a lot of pressure to put them in boxes, to display them and gift them, but we're going to throw those away in coming months. We've got bags in, in production that will be reused. The container themselves is reused and we've made sensible choices about the, the contents being 100% soy and, and high quality fragrances and, and natural wicks. When you actually look at the, at the cost of doing that, the upfront cost and the upfront price is actually in the container and the packaging. So if we can reuse that, we can keep the cost down. The opportunity for us is to scale this, obviously. We have tested that out of our store for the last year um, and online. And obviously, working from home during COVID, we had a a great uplift in in sales and we're running all over the place delivering those to deliver a, a great experience for our customers. Um, but organically, it's already started to to move down the wholesale wholesale path, and there is enough margin in there for us to make that wholesale worthwhile. We're working through how much we want to do direct versus how much we want to wholesale, but we see wholesale as an opportunity to drive impact. I suppose four million candles are sold in Australia every year, and they're largely single use. We want to eliminate that single use nature, and for us to do that, we need to scale very fast. So we're going to do that through that through that uh, that wholesale um, stockist arrangement. My, literally, my brain has just turned to mush in my head with the number of questions that I I, I immediately have for you on this. But the f- the first one is just sort of trying to take it easy and ease myself into this conversation because, to be honest with you, sustainability of wax and candles has not been something I've looked at at all. So I'm a newbie. Why is normal wax not sustainable? What is it that makes that not sustainable? As a, in the, you've chosen soy. So um. If you look at previously, um, the major wax that was being used was paraffin wax, which is a byproduct of crude oil. So candle distributors use paraffin wax, and there's even some of the biggest candle brands in Australia today are still using a blend of paraffin and soy, which is horrendous. So one, it's out of crude oil, which you know has huge impacts, and also, it's just not good to be burning in the home. It has, you know, some some toxins to it, toxins to it that you just don't want to be burning in your home. So that's pretty obvious. The reason why candle companies use it is because it burns quicker, it's cheaper, um, and it's easier to be able to use. So you get more of a you know cleaner looking candle. So yeah, we we don't go down that route. In the natural vegetable waxes, there's soy, there's coconut, there's beeswax. 
And all of those are fantastic. Probably the best one is beeswax, but beeswax comes at an exorbitant price. So it just price your candles out of the market, but it is a, a, it's a beautiful wax to use. So for us, soy was the way to go. Brilliant answer. Thank you. That, that clarifies it perfectly for me. I-, I could talk for hours about candles which I never knew I'd be able to. No, I know. That's it. When you get passionate <laughs> about something, you find, you learn everything about it and you realize you've got this wealth of knowledge. And, and I'll just be honest with you, I would actually like to ask more questions, but there's so many other things I want to ask that I can't go in any further into it. But Giles, I was just going to say the key message there is just don't buy soy blend because you just don't know what you're getting. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I didn't know that about candles. So thank you for educating me on that. Now, you mentioned then about packaging and the, co- the, the most of the cost in the candle being in the packaging. I'm assuming you're talking about the primary packaging the thing that holds the candle together, not the the outside stuff, the secondary and then the shipment packaging. Yeah, I mean both. Okay. So there's three layers. There's the container and Haley's uh, passion um, was around sourcing the right packaging, uh, you know, the right container. Um, and we've engraved a glass container that um, we, we've actually gone through an evolution. There was some concrete, there was some glass, there was some ceramics, but we've landed on some beautiful glass containers. So that is the reusable component. That's the component the customer brings back to the store. Yeah. Then at the moment, it sits within a recycled box, um, but we want to get rid of that because we don't want to be recycling. And on the way, we have some beautiful jute bags that are being made out of Bangladesh um, by a social, an Australian social enterprise, Earthworthy. The idea is that the consumer will purchase that candle from whichever store or online with one bag, and then they reuse that as they're transporting their candle back and forward. And then what sits outside of that, unfortunately, needs to be recycled products. So we don't use any plastics. Uh, we're using hex, and we're trying to educate our customers that if your box turns up and it's you know, not a pretty white box. It's uh, probably been reused along the way. And a lot of that packaging to protect the candle uh, as we ship that out, um, it quite possibly has been reused. Because there is a reverse logistics and those containers come back from customers too, they go into a circular uh, cycle as well, where we're reusing that packaging to send out the next customer's candle, if that makes sense. It does. And I, I love it. And and but something that's that I'm a little bit confused about now is, you know, obviously you want to get scale with the with the wholesale uh, type of situation. But how do you make that circular? Like when it's your customer and they bring it back to you, or even if they send it back to you because they bought it from you in the first place, there's a nice clear cycle there but when it's a wholesale how do they know when like how do they know how to get that back to you and then what happens after wholesale so it's very similar to the retail model so the idea is that you can go to any stockist and exchange your candle that stockist then holds that empty container and when they order the next round they get that candle 40 percent cheaper so it's exactly the same You've nailed, I suppose, the biggest challenge we have because the reverse logistics wholesale model is quite a new model for a lot of organisations. Um, we are going to need to look at each of our channels um, in an integrated way. So we will have some retail, we'll have some digital, we'll have some wholesale. We are playing around with an idea that we're probably not yet ready to to share with your listeners around how we can support that reverse logistics in a more seamless way. Our big focus is is looking at uh, the metro growth for us. We serve um, all of Australia through um, e-commerce, through couriers, et cetera. But within Sydney, we I'll give you an example. There is a cafe in Crow's Nest that's currently stocking candle exchange. They've got, say, 30 candles in their cafe. They give us a call when they've got 10 that have come back and they want those replenished. Um, So when we deliver their new ones, we take away their empty ones and we put them back into that cycle. It is the, I suppose, 
the New Frontier Reverse Logistics, and I've heard a couple of your other case study um, podcasts are also trying to tackle this broader reverse logistics. And I think as the industry matures, as we're trying to use reusable containers across a lot of other consumable categories, it will get a lot easier. There's another example, um, Bundle Fresh on the Northern Beaches of, of Sydney is expanding into the North Shore of Sydney and, and in future beyond. They source um, grocery items uh, and fresh food and, and other non-perishable goods and across multiple stores so that you can support local and they deliver it in one crate, um, in one delivery. At the moment, they will deliver a candle. They'll also pick up the next pickup an empty candle. So we are looking to partner with like-minded um, organisations that can do that reverse logistics. We're trialling it out at the moment in hairdressing salons because customers, female customers, um, certainly uh, return every four, six, eight weeks into a, uh, a hairdressing salon. Uh, we've got some stockists that are florists that have regular local trade as well. So the benefit to the wholesaler is that the customer has another reason to return back to their store. Yeah, so, so smart what you guys are doing. It really, truly is. It's very, very exciting. So uh, we're coming close to the end of our time together. Where, What's next for Candle Exchange? What do you, where do you see it going over the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, um, yeah, so our opportunity will be to expand the candles for sure. Do you mean the physical range? Yeah, to, well, to expand the physical range, but also the distribution of candles across New South Wales and then into other states, which is very exciting. We are launching a new product, which is the diffusers. So the, the glass container that has the sticks coming out of it that gives off a beautiful fragrance. So once again, there's the opportunity for the direct swap and go of that uh, glass container to be kept in use. And so you yeah, will start to also look at so, so our philosophy is that, you know, there, there is going to be a lot of different ways. Um, and we, you know, I heard Mike from Zero on of how we solve this circular problem. Some of it will be recyclable. Some of it will be reused. Some will be upcycled. For us, we're really focused on this whole swap and go reuse way of being able to solve this problem. But it will take a magnitude of those uh, working together to be able to, you know, solve this problem overall. So we're just sort of zeroing on in on the reuse swap and go model. And so for us, it'll be just how do we do more of that? I think the reverse logistics is going to become a lot more mainstream. Um, and we want to be working along the providers, aside the providers that are helping us be able to do those reverse logistics in the best way possible. So I think we'll see more of that. You're seeing a lot of that coming out of the US and Europe. And I think hopefully we'll see that in Australia over the next year or two of providers that are going to really specialize in reverse logistics. And so, yeah, we just sort of see this whole swap and go model um, expanding. Yeah, brilliant. Karen, did you want to add anything to that? I think the the one last thing I'd just love to, to share with your listeners is our upcycle program. We saw, well, we heard, you know, customers saying we have cupboards full of empty containers um, and we saw an opportunity to up, upcycle those. You know, only 30% of glass that goes in your recycling bin is actually recycled and many of those candle containers are frosted or heat treated and, and are unable to be recycled. So we'll accept those um, and if any of your listeners have some donations of old candle containers, just drop us a note and we'll work out the most convenient way of getting those back to us if, if not in our in our store at Bagala. We refill those and then we donate them to a number of organisations supporting domestic violence survivors moving into new homes or, or settling refugees. Um, so I'm really excited about the growth of that as well, because if our mission is to remove 
you know, the, the landfill associated with the 4 million candles used in Australia every year, we've got another mechanism to do that that just has a really lovely social, social aspect. I think there's a, an important point to make that single-use plastics is a huge, massive, extraordinary mountain to climb to be able to solve for very good reason and it's an area that needs to be completely focused on. I think people also need to understand that glass, even though it doesn't have as as much of the challenges that we see with single-use plastics, there's still issues in regards to how to you know make sure that we're not creating landfill uh, because at the moment in Australia and all around the world, only 36% of the glass that ends up in landfill is actually being recycled um, because at the moment it is not cost effective for companies using glass packaging to buy recycled glass over new glass. And so, you know, they're the things that we've got to start to be creative about was how do we solve this problem with glass uh, as well? Yeah, it's such an important point you you raised there. And, and just going back, you mentioned Zirico and Mike Smith from an earlier show that we had in the series. Uh, and, and something that he said stuck with me, which the simple statement that recycling is not a thing. And, and that's such an important thing for us all to understand because it's all very well to say, oh, yes, my product is recyclable. Well, who cares? Like this, what you guys are doing is creating a circular business model is the way that we can, we can get ourselves out of the problem that we have of stuff just ending up in landfill. And, and what you're doing is so very, very smart. And it isn't just about plastics. It's about paper. It's about textiles. It's about glass. It's about all the things that we're producing that need we need ways to keep reusing the things that we've already created well and i think it's it's different you've got to take yourself away from the actual material and the resource and you've got to look at you know how do you design products now in a way that is circular as you can see i'm i'm absolutely bought into the philosophy of circular and i sort of look at it like a pharmaceutical company you know when you create a drug you have to ensure that it has no harmful effects or long-term effects on the people that are going to use it. And I sort of see that now with everyday products that we're creating, you have to go into it thinking, you know, what are the harmful and long-term effects that this product could produce on the planet and how do we ensure that that's not going to occur? And unfortunately, I agree with Mike when he talked about government isn't going to solve this. In pharmaceuticals, there's regulations, there's policies, et cetera, along that supply chain to ensure the harmful effects, et cetera, are all um, you know, outlined and monitored. But unfortunately, they're just not keeping up um, when it comes to being able to create a sustainable product um, and be able to help us be able to do that. So we've got to do it on our own. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Karen, where can people get involved with your Candle Exchange? Where can they go? First, first port of call is our website, Candle Exchange with one E in the middle, .com.au. Follow us on Instagram as well. Um, and on our website, we'll include a number of our stockists. Our flagship store is at uh, Balgala on the northern beaches. Uh, we also have stockists uh, all over Sydney and up in Newcastle. Um, if someone wants to become a stockist, please reach out uh, via our uh, uh, email, hello at candleexchange.com.au. We love a chat, as you can hear. So <laughs> drop us a line, even if you've got an idea, um, got some feedback, uh, want to have a look, have a sample. Um, like fabrics, candles are something you need to smell. We're very happy to share pe with people online um, what other people are saying about candles. And, and if you're unsure which one to try, go the Australian bush. It's our, our most popular. Fantastic. Thanks so much again. You, you, wealth of knowledge, both of you, and I love your passion for this space. It's really exciting. I know that everyone would have really enjoyed listening to you chat about solving this big, big problem that we have. So thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Charles. Back to Giles again, just to cover off my top 
three takeouts from today's show. Firstly, I just want to touch on what Haley was describing about their experience as a young brand in the fashion space. The whole industry structure makes it incredibly difficult to leverage wholesale and stockets without a heap of capital and almost impossible to break away from waste and the expectations of fast fashion. A lot of bagging and flaming goes on with regards fashion labels for unsustainable practices and rightly so. But these kinds of entrenched industry structures are hard to change. And so if you're pursuing the sustainable fashion track, focusing on DTC is probably your best bet for success, both financially and without challenging your values to breaking point. Secondly, and as we've discussed before on the show, recycling has real issues. Baking in circularity into your e-commerce business model not only alleviates some of the issues of recycling, but it's also a powerful glue that has the potential to be a game changer for increasing your rate of returning customers. And as a bonus selling point for finding retail partners, as Karen pointed out, a great conversation point in increasing the stickiness and reason to return for their customers too. Lastly, there's this important discussion of whether consumers are willing to pay more for sustainable products. Research says no, or at least that only a third say they're willing to pay more. Now that sort of research was mostly conducted before the pandemic and certainly before the world's current focus on rising interest rates, inflation, looming recession. Not to mention that sustainability is setting in as an expectation rather than an exception for many people. We've seen two business models today, a fashion label where the cost of goods for sustainable fabrics is simply higher than synthetics and therefore the end garment price is needfully higher as well. And another one where clever thinking and reuse and diminishing necessity for packaging materially reduces the cost, but where much of the margin then may be taken up to cover reverse logistics. Regardless, if your brand is to thrive, pricing is of key importance and to make that stick, you need to be able to tell the value story of your product and how purchasing it will help the environment. To help you with that, I'm running an online masterclass for sustainable brands on the 23rd of June. We're going to be going into the nuts and bolts of how to tell your story in order to attract more customers and enroll them into being a loyal advocate for both your brand and your mission. Registration is free and I'll drop a link to it at the end of the show notes. Hope to see you there.